Part One, Chapter Four of the Idiot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Eva M. Martin. Part One, Chapter Four. All three of the Miss Yepanchins were fine, healthy girls well-grown, with good shoulders and busts, and strong, almost masculine hands. And, of course, with all the above attributes, they enjoyed capital appetites, of which they were not in the least ashamed. Elizaveta Prokofievna sometimes informed the girls that they were a little too candid in this matter, but in spite of their outward deference to their mother, these three young women, in solemn conclave, had long agreed to modify the unquestioning obedience which they had been in the habit of according to her, and Mrs. General Yepanchin had judged it better to say nothing about it, though of course she was well aware of the fact. It is true that her nature sometimes rebelled against these dictates of reason, and that she grew yearly more capricious and impatient, but having a respectful and well-disciplined husband under her thumb at all times, she found it possible as a rule to empty any little accumulations of spleen upon his head, and therefore the harmony of the family was kept duly balanced, and things went as smoothly as family matters can. Mrs. Yepanchin had a fair appetite herself, and generally took her share of the capital midday lunch which was always served for the girls, and which was nearly as good as a dinner. The young ladies used to have a cup of coffee each before this meal at ten o'clock, while still in bed. This was a favourite and unalterable arrangement with them. At half-past twelve the table was laid in the small dining-room, and occasionally the general himself appeared at the family gathering, if he had time. Besides tea and coffee, cheese, honey, butter, pancakes of various kinds the lady of the house loved these best, cutlets and so on, there was generally strong beef soup and other substantial delicacies. On the particular morning on which our story has opened, the family had assembled in the dining-room, and were waiting the general's appearance, the latter having promised to come this day. If he had been one moment late he would have been sent for at once, but he turned up punctually. As he came forward to wish his wife good morning and kiss her hands, as his custom was, he observed something in her look which boded ill. He thought he knew the reason, and had expected it, but still he was not altogether comfortable. His daughters advanced to kiss him too, and though they did not look exactly angry, there was something strange in their expression as well. The general was, owing to certain circumstances, a little inclined to be too suspicious at home, and needlessly nervous but as an experienced father and husband he judged it better to take measures at once to protect himself from any dangers there might be in the air 
However, I hope I shall not interfere with the proper sequence of my narrative too much, if I diverge for a moment at this point, in order to explain the mutual relations between General Yepanchin's family, and others acting a part in this history, at the time when we take up the thread of their destiny. I have already stated that the general, though he was a man of lowly origin and of poor education, was for all that an experienced and talented husband and father. Among other things, he considered it undesirable to hurry his daughters to the matrimonial altar, and to worry them too much with assurances of his paternal wishes for their happiness, as is the custom among parents of many grown-up daughters. He even succeeded in ranging his wife on his side on this question, though he found the feat very difficult to accomplish, because unnatural. But the general's arguments were conclusive, and founded upon obvious facts. The general considered that the girl's taste and good sense should be allowed to develop and mature deliberately, and that the parent's duty should merely be to keep watch, in order that no strange or undesirable choice be made but that the selection once effected, both father and mother were bound from that moment to enter heart and soul into the cause, and to see that the matter progressed without hindrance until the altar should be happily reached. Besides this, it was clear that the Yapanchin's position gained each year, with geometrical accuracy, both as to financial solidity and social weight, and therefore the longer the girls waited, the better was their chance of making a brilliant match. But again, amidst the incontrovertible facts just recorded, one more, equally significant, rose up to confront the family, and this was that the eldest daughter, Alexandra, had imperceptibly arrived at her twenty-fifth birthday. Almost at the same moment, Afanasy Ivanovich Totsky, a man of immense wealth, high connections, and good standing, announced his intention of marrying. Afanasy Ivanovich was a gentleman of fifty-five years of age, artistically gifted, and of most refined tastes. He wished to marry well, and moreover he was a keen admirer and judge of beauty. Now, since Totsky had of late been upon terms of great cordiality with Yepanchin, which excellent relations were intensified by the fact that they were, so to speak, partners in several financial enterprises, it so happened that the former now put in a friendly request to the general for counsel with regard to the important step he meditated. Might he suggest, for instance, such a thing as a marriage between himself and one of the general's daughters? Evidently the quiet, pleasant current of the family life of the Yepanchins was about to undergo a change. The undoubted beauty of the family, par excellence, was the youngest Aglaya, as aforesaid but Totsky himself, though an egotist of the extremest type, realised that he had no chance there. Aglaya was clearly not for such as he. Perhaps the sisterly love and friendship of the three girls had more or less exaggerated Aglaya's chances of happiness. 
in their opinion the latter's destiny was not merely to be very happy she was to live in a heaven on earth aglaya's husband was to be a compendium of all the virtues and of all success not to speak of fabulous wealth the two elder sisters had agreed that all was to be sacrificed by them if need be for aglaya's sake her dowry was to be colossal and unprecedented the general and his wife were aware of this agreement and therefore when totski suggested himself for one of the sisters the parents made no doubt that one of the two elder girls would probably accept the offer since totski would certainly make no difficulty as to dowry the general valued the proposal very highly he knew life and realized what such an offer was worth the answer of the sisters to the communication was if not conclusive at least consoling and hopeful it made known that the eldest alexandra would very likely be disposed to listen to a proposal alexandra was a good-natured girl though she had a will of her own she was intelligent and kind-hearted and if she were to marry Totsky, she would make him a good wife. She did not care for a brilliant marriage. She was eminently a woman calculated to soothe and sweeten the life of any man. Decidedly pretty, if not absolutely handsome. What better could Totsky wish? So the matter crept slowly forward the general and totski had agreed to avoid any hasty and irrevocable step alexandra's parents had not even begun to talk to their daughters freely upon the subject when suddenly as it were a dissonant chord was struck amid the harmony of the proceedings mrs epanchin began to show signs of discontent and this was a serious matter a certain circumstance had crept in a disagreeable and troublesome factor which threatened to overturn the whole business this circumstance had come into existence eighteen years before close to an estate of totski's in one of the central provinces of russia there lived at that time a poor gentleman whose estate was of the wretchedest description this gentleman was noted in the district for his persistent ill-fortune. His name was Barashkov, and as regards family and descent he was vastly superior to Totsky, but his estate was mortgaged to the last acre. One day, when he had ridden over to the town to see a creditor, the chief peasant of his village followed him shortly after, with the news that his house had been burnt down and that his wife had perished with it, but his children were safe. Even Barashkov, inured to the storms of evil fortune as he was, could not stand this last stroke. He went mad, and died shortly after in the town hospital. His estate was sold for the creditors, and the little girls, two of them, of seven and eight years of age respectively, were adopted by Totsky, who undertook their maintenance and education in the kindness of his heart. They were brought up together with the children of his German bailiff. Very soon, however, there was only one of them left, Nastasia Filipovna, 
for the other little one died of whooping cough. Totsky, who was living abroad at this time, very soon forgot all about the child, but five years after, returning to Russia, it struck him that he would like to look over his estate and see how matters were going there, and arrived at his bailiff's house, he was not long in discovering that among the children of the latter there now dwelt a most lovely little girl of twelve, sweet and intelligent and bright, and promising to develop beauty of most unusual quality, as to which last Totsky was an undoubted authority. He only stayed at his country seat a few days on this occasion, but he had time to make his arrangements. Great changes took place in the child's education. A good governess was engaged, a Swiss lady of experience and culture. For four years this lady resided in the house with little Nastya, and then the education was considered complete. The governess took her departure, and another lady came down to fetch Nastya, by Totsky's instructions. The child was now transported to another of Totsky's estates in a distant part of the country. Here she found a delightful little house just built, and prepared for her reception with great care and taste. And here she took up her abode, together with the lady who had accompanied her from her old home. In the house there were two experienced maids, musical instruments of all sorts, a charming young lady's library, pictures, paint-boxes, a lap-dog, and everything to make life agreeable. Within a fortnight Totsky himself arrived, and from that time he appeared to have taken a great fancy to this part of the world, and came down each summer, staying two and three months at a time. So passed four years, peacefully and happily, in charming surroundings. At the end of that time, and about four months after Totsky's last visit, he had stayed but a fortnight on this occasion, a report reached Nastasia Filipovna that he was about to be married in St. Petersburg to a rich, eminent, and lovely woman. The report was only partially true, the marriage project being only in an embryo condition. But a great change now came over Nastasia Filipovna. She suddenly displayed unusual decision of character, and without wasting time in thought she left her country home, and came up to St. Petersburg, straight to Totsky's house, all alone. The latter, amazed at her conduct, began to express his displeasure. But he very soon became aware that he must change his voice, style, and everything else with this young lady. The good old times were gone. An entirely new and different woman sat before him, between whom and the girl he had left in the country last July there seemed nothing in common. In the first place, this new woman understood a good deal more than was usual for young people of her age, so much, indeed, that Totsky could not help wondering where she had picked up her knowledge, surely not from her young lady's library. It even embraced legal matters and the world in general, to a considerable extent. 
her character was absolutely changed no more of the girlish alternations of timidity and petulance the adorable naivete the reveries the tears the playfulness it was an entirely new and hitherto unknown being who now sat and laughed at him and informed him to his face that she had never had the faintest feeling for him of any kind except loathing and contempt contempt which had followed closely upon her sensations of surprise and bewilderment after her first acquaintance with him this new woman gave him further to understand that though it was absolutely the same to her whom he married yet she had decided to prevent this marriage for no particular reason but that she chose to do so and because she wished to amuse herself at his expense for that it was quite her turn to laugh a little now such were her words very likely she did not give her real reason for this eccentric conduct but at all events that was all the explanation she deigned to offer meanwhile totsky thought the matter over as well as his scattered ideas would permit his meditations lasted a fortnight however and at the end of that time his resolution was taken the fact was totsky was at that time a man of fifty years of age his position was solid and respectable his place in society had long been firmly fixed upon safe foundations he loved himself his personal comforts and his position better than all the world as every respectable gentleman should at the same time his grasp of things in general soon showed totsky that he now had to deal with a being who was outside the pale of the ordinary rules of traditional behaviour and who would not only threaten mischief but would undoubtedly carry it out and stop for no one there was evidently he concluded something at work here some storm of the mind some paroxysm of romantic anger goodness knows against whom or what some insatiable contempt in a word something altogether absurd and impossible but at the same time most dangerous to be met with by any respectable person with a position in society to keep up for a man of totsky's wealth and standing it would of course have been the simplest possible matter to take steps which would rid him at once from all annoyance while it was obviously impossible for nastasia philipovna to harm him in any way either legally or by stirring up a scandal for in the case of the latter danger he could so easily remove her to a sphere of safety however these arguments would only hold good in case of nastasia acting as others might in such an emergency she was much more likely to overstep the bounds of reasonable conduct by some extraordinary eccentricity here the sound judgment of totsky stood him in good stead he realized that nastasia philipovna must be well aware that she could do nothing by legal means to injure him and that her flashing eyes betrayed some entirely different intention nastasia philipovna was quite capable of ruining herself 
and even of perpetrating something which would send her to Siberia, for the mere pleasure of injuring a man for whom she had developed so inhuman a sense of loathing and contempt. He had sufficient insight to understand that she valued nothing in the world, herself least of all, and he made no attempt to conceal the fact that he was a coward in some respects. For instance, if he had been told that he would be stabbed at the altar, or publicly insulted, he would undoubtedly have been frightened, but not so much at the idea of being murdered, or wounded, or insulted, as at the thought that if such things were to happen, he would be made to look ridiculous in the eyes of society. He knew well that Nastasia thoroughly understood him, and where to wound him and how. And therefore, as the marriage was still only in embryo, Totsky decided to conciliate her by giving it up. His decision was strengthened by the fact that Nastasia Filipovna had curiously altered of late. It would be difficult to conceive how different she was physically, at the present time, to the girl of a few years ago. She was pretty then, but now... Totsky laughed angrily when he thought how short-sighted he had been. In days gone by he remembered how he had looked at her beautiful eyes, how even then he had marvelled at their dark, mysterious depths, and at their wondering gaze which seemed to seek an answer to some unknown riddle. Her complexion also had altered. She was now exceedingly pale, but curiously this change only made her more beautiful. Like most men of the world, Totsky had rather despised such a cheaply bought conquest, but of late years he had begun to think differently about it. It had struck him as long ago as last spring that he ought to be finding a good match for Nastasia. For instance, some respectable and reasonable young fellow serving in a government office in another part of the country. How maliciously Nastasia laughed at the idea of such a thing now! However, it appeared to Totsky that he might make use of her in another way, and he determined to establish her in St. Petersburg, surrounding her with all the comforts and luxuries that his wealth could command. In this way he might gain glory in certain circles. Five years of this Petersburg life went by, and of course during that time a great deal happened. Totsky's position was very uncomfortable. Having funked once, he could not totally regain his ease. He was afraid, he did not know why, but he was simply afraid of Nastasia Filipovna. For the first two years or so he had suspected that she wished to marry him herself, and that only her vanity prevented her telling him so. He thought that she wanted him to approach her with a humble proposal from his own side, but to his great and not entirely pleasurable amazement he discovered that this was by no means the case, and that were he to offer himself he would be refused. He could not understand such a state of things, and was obliged to conclude that it was pride, 
the pride of an injured and imaginative woman, which had gone to such lengths that it preferred to sit and nurse its contempt and hatred in solitude, rather than mount to heights of hitherto unattainable splendour. To make matters worse, she was quite impervious to mercenary considerations, and could not be bribed in any way. Finally, Totsky took cunning means to try to break his chains and be free. He tried to tempt her in various ways to lose her heart. He invited princes, hussars, secretaries of embassies, poets, novelists, even socialists to see her, but not one of them all made the faintest impression upon Nastasia. It was as though she had a pebble in place of a heart as though her feelings and affections were dried up and withered for ever. She lived almost entirely alone. She read, she studied, she loved music. Her principal acquaintances were poor women of various grades, a couple of actresses, and the family of a poor schoolteacher. Among these people she was much beloved. She received four or five friends sometimes of an evening. Totsky often came. Lately, too, General Yepanchin had been enabled with great difficulty to introduce himself into her circle. Gania made her acquaintance also, and others were Ferdishenko, an ill-bred and would-be witty young clerk, and Ptitsin, a money-lender of modest and polished manners, who had risen from poverty. In fact, Nastasia Filipovna's beauty became a thing known to all the town, but not a single man could boast of anything more than his own admiration for her, and this reputation of hers, and her wit and culture and grace, all confirmed Totsky in the plan he had now prepared. And it was at this moment that General Yepanchin began to play so large and important a part in the story. When Totsky had approached the general with his request for friendly counsel as to a marriage with one of his daughters, he had made a full and candid confession. He had said that he intended to stop at no means to obtain his freedom. Even if Nastasia were to promise to leave him entirely alone in future, he would not, he said, believe and trust her. Words were not enough for him. He must have solid guarantees of some sort. So he and the general determined to try what an attempt to appeal to her heart would effect. Having arrived at Nastasia's house one day with Yepanchin, Totsky immediately began to speak of the intolerable torment of his position. He admitted that he was to blame for all, but candidly confessed that he could not bring himself to feel any remorse for his original guilt towards herself, because he was a man of sensual passions, which were inborn and ineradicable, and that he had no power over himself in this respect, but that he wished seriously to marry at last, and that the whole fate of the most desirable social union which he contemplated was in her hands. In a word, he confided his all to her generosity of heart. General Yepanchin took up his part, and spoke in the character of father of a family. He spoke sensibly, 
and without wasting words over any attempt at sentimentality he merely recorded his full admission of her right to be the arbiter of totsky's destiny at this moment he then pointed out that the fate of his daughter and very likely of both his other daughters now hung upon her reply to nastasia's question as to what they wished her to do Totsky confessed that he had been so frightened by her five years ago that he could never now be entirely comfortable until she herself married. He immediately added that such a suggestion from him would, of course, be absurd, unless accompanied by remarks of a more pointed nature. He very well knew, he said, that a certain young gentleman of good family, namely Gavrila Ardalionovici Volgin, with whom she was acquainted, and whom she received at her house, had long loved her passionately, and would give his life for some response from her. The young fellow had confessed this love of his to him, Totsky, and had also admitted it in the hearing of his benefactor, General Yepanchin. Lastly, he could not help being of opinion that Nastasia must be aware of Gania's love for her, and if he, Totsky, mistook not, she had looked with some favour upon it, being often lonely and rather tired of her present life. Having remarked how difficult it was for him of all people to speak to her of these matters, Totsky concluded by saying that he trusted Nastasia Filipovna would not look with contempt upon him, if he now expressed his sincere desire to guarantee her future by a gift of seventy-five thousand roubles. He added that the sum would have been left her all the same in his will, and that therefore she must not consider the gift as in any way an indemnification to her for anything but that there was no reason, after all, why a man should not be allowed to entertain a natural desire to lighten his conscience, etc., etc. In fact, all that would naturally be said under the circumstances. Totsky was very eloquent all through, and in conclusion just touched on the fact that not a soul in the world, not even General Yepanchin, had ever heard a word about the above seventy-five thousand roubles, and that this was the first time he had ever given expression to his intentions in respect to them. Nastasia Filipovna's reply to this long rigmarole astonished both the friends considerably. Not only was there no trace of her former irony, of her old hatred and enmity, and of that dreadful laughter the very recollection of which sent a cold chill down Totsky's back to this very day. But she seemed charmed, and really glad to have the opportunity of talking seriously with him for once in a way. She confessed that she had long wished to have a frank and free conversation, and to ask for friendly advice, but that pride had hitherto prevented her. Now, however, that the ice was broken, nothing could be more welcome to her than this opportunity. First with a sad smile, and then with a twinkle of merriment in her eyes, she admitted that such a storm as that of five years ago was now quite out of the question. She said that she had long since changed her views of things, and recognised that facts must be taken into consideration in spite of the feelings of the heart. 
what was done was done and ended and she could not understand why totsky should still feel alarmed she next turned to general Yepanchin, and observed most courteously that she had long since known of his daughters and that she had heard none but good report that she had learned to think of them with deep and sincere respect the idea alone that she could in any way serve them would be to her both a pride and a source of real happiness it was true that she was lonely in her present life totsky had judged her thoughts aright she longed to rise if not to love at least to family life and new hopes and objects but as to gavrila ardalionovitch she could not as yet say much she thought it must be the case that he loved her she felt that she too might learn to love him if she could be sure of the firmness of his attachment to herself but he was very young and it was a difficult question to decide what she specially liked about him was that he worked and supported his family by his toil she had heard that he was proud and ambitious she had heard much that was interesting of his mother and sister she had heard of them from mr ptitsin and would much like to make their acquaintance but another question would they like to receive her into their house at all events though she did not reject the idea of this marriage she desired not to be hurried as for the seventy-five thousand roubles mr totsky need not have found any difficulty or awkwardness about the matter she quite understood the value of money and would of course accept the gift she thanked him for his delicacy however but saw no reason why gavrila ardalionovitch should not know about it she would not marry the latter she said until she felt persuaded that neither on his part nor on the part of his family did there exist any sort of concealed suspicions as to herself she did not intend to ask forgiveness for anything in the past which fact she desired to be known she did not consider herself to blame for anything that had happened in former years and she thought that gavrila ardalionovitch should be informed as to the relations which had existed between herself and totsky during the last five years if she accepted this money it was not to be considered as indemnification for her misfortune as a young girl which had not been in any degree her own fault but merely as compensation for her ruined life she became so excited and agitated during all these explanations and confessions that general Yepanchin was highly gratified and considered the matter satisfactorily arranged once for all but the once bitten totsky was twice shy and looked for hidden snakes among the flowers however the special point to which the two friends particularly trusted to bring about their object namely gania's attractiveness for nastasia philipovna stood out more and more prominently the pourparlers had commenced and gradually even totsky began to believe in the possibility of success before long nastasia and gania had talked the matter over 
very little was said her modesty seemed to suffer under the infliction of discussing such a question but she recognized his love on the understanding that she bound herself to nothing whatever and that she reserved the right to say no up to the very hour of the marriage ceremony gania was to have the same right of refusal at the last moment it soon became clear to gania after scenes of wrath and quarrellings at the domestic hearth that his family were seriously opposed to the match and that nastasia was aware of this fact was equally evident she said nothing about it though he daily expected her to do so there were several rumours afloat before long which upset totsky's equanimity a good deal but we will not now stop to describe them merely mentioning an instance or two one was that nastasia had entered into close and secret relations with the yapanchin girls a most unlikely rumour another was that nastasia had long satisfied herself of the fact that gania was merely marrying her for money and that his nature was gloomy and greedy impatient and selfish to an extraordinary degree and that although he had been keen enough in his desire to achieve a conquest before yet since the two friends had agreed to exploit his passion for their own purposes it was clear enough that he had begun to consider the whole thing a nuisance and a nightmare in his heart passion and hate seemed to hold divided sway and although he had at last given his consent to marry the woman as he said under the stress of circumstances yet he promised himself that he would take it out of her after marriage nastasia seemed to totsky to have divined all this and to be preparing something on her own account which frightened him to such an extent that he did not dare communicate his views even to the general but at times he would pluck up his courage and be full of hope and good spirits again acting in fact as weak men do act in such circumstances however both the friends felt that the thing looked rosy indeed when one day nastasia informed them that she would give her final answer on the evening of her birthday which anniversary was due in a very short time a strange rumour began to circulate meanwhile no less than that the respectable and highly respected general Yepanchin was himself so fascinated by nastasia philipovna that his feeling for her amounted almost to passion what he thought to gain by gania's marriage to the girl it was difficult to imagine possibly he counted on gania's complaisance for Totsky had long suspected that there existed some secret understanding between the general and his secretary. At all events the fact was known that he had prepared a magnificent present of pearls for Nastasia's birthday, and that he was looking forward to the occasion when he should present his gift with the greatest excitement and impatience. The day before her birthday he was in a fever of agitation mrs yepanchin long accustomed to her husband's infidelities had heard of the pearls and the rumour excited her liveliest curiosity and interest the general remarked her suspicions 
and felt that a grand explanation must shortly take place, which fact alarmed him much. This is the reason why he was so unwilling to take lunch, on the morning upon which we took up this narrative, with the rest of his family. Before the prince's arrival he had made up his mind to plead business and cut the meal, which simply meant running away. He was particularly anxious that this one day should be passed, especially the evening, without unpleasantness between himself and his family. And just at the right moment the prince turned up. "'As though heaven had sent him on purpose,' said the general to himself, as he left the study to seek out the wife of his bosom. End of Part 1 Chapter 4 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey